and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me, Elric Kane. School's almost out for summer. I'm your subservient uh, familiar, uh, living in familiar. your shadow. You're controlling my every whim. That's pretty I, I That's it. That's where we are. You're going to have to get some self-help classes, man. They call it co-host, but really everyone knows I'm the diminutive other. <laughs> The other, I'm totally overbearing. I get it. Yeah, I get it's it. It's pretty rough. So. It's pretty hard, especially because I'm but, a timid guy. Oh, so yeah. That's quiet, it. Internal. When I look at you, I'm like, oh my God, he's such an introvert. He's thing, so, you know? he's so just internalized. So, um, well, we went to see Renfield last. To, time has no meaning now. I don't, it's almost, school's almost out. So that's it. But we went to see Renfield sometime last week and it was, awesome we had the best time there it was a packed house everyone was howling absolute trip um so we really really recommend you to go see this while it's in the theater we're going to be talking with the director kiss mckay in just a bit yeah we i mean look i you know i'm just nick cage is my favorite actor because jack is retired so I, I get my second favorite becomes my favorite nick uh oh, since i was pretty young and so it's always a th- and you always wonder i wonder if he'll nail this or not because it's always going to be a little bit of a mixed bag in the long career and just he absolutely slays in this role mm-hmm. and it's so much fun and it's so lovingly referential to a lot of different uh iterations of dracula uh, which we'll get into later in our interview uh it's just a super fun movie and and it's it's, you know, it hasn't performed uh, like you would hope it would uh, on opening week. And so, you know, part of this is like, I really want to make sure people go see it and support it because horror comedy is not the sure thing that people, you know, we see horror films often dominating uh, surprisingly at the box office, but horror comedy, it's a lot harder. And unfortunately, you know, given some of the competition this week, it it didn't. And I wonder, Renfield, the word means something to people like us. I wonder if, you know, people were calling it Dracula's assistant or something, maybe they would understand what it is better. Um, but but yeah, I just want people to see this in a the theater because it was just so much fun. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm often looking for something that will also lighten the load uh, of life because usually the movies I watch at home are all dark and crazy. But when I'm in a theater, it is still a really nice experience to be howling with laughter. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And no, I, I hear so often from horror fans, like, why don't we get the big, crazy R-rated gore fest like we got in the 80s? And it's that they're big studio risks. Yeah. They are. They're massive studio risks. This is one. So really support the studios on this risk because if this does not do well, I'm worried that they're just going to – it says something about horror comedies and gore that we don't necessarily want it to say. I love everything that is this movie. Um, So, yeah, let's keep it going, folks. Yes, yeah, super fun. So with – that um we'll be talking with director chris mckay about how much we enjoyed the film later on in the show but for now i'm gonna kick us off tonight with a book wait you're starting with a book i'm starting with a book i said doing it this reminds me of all your pitches that use the word cerebral cerebral oh my god that's a joke from the future It's a future joke. Well done. It's a time loop that they will only understand 90 minutes from now. We referenced ourselves in 90 minutes. 73 minutes, you will understand this joke. Okay, well, this book, it was kind of cerebral, but it was real fucking gory. And I I have to say, um, the name of the book is Nothing But Blackened Teeth. And I have a feeling- 
Really good title. There is, um, so, and this is only because I've been working in publishing for the last like year, but there are these very strong delineations between what is YA, what is adult, what is middle grade, and then even within that, what is fiction, especially within adult horror, what is considered a novel, and what is a novella. Hmm. I'm pretty sure this is riding the line between novella and novel, which means it's blissfully short and it's a super quick read. Um, but it is great. Nothing but black and teeth. I'm late to the table by, of this one. I'll, I'll apologize now. This came out in 2021 from Tor Nightfire. And I had gotten it back in 2021, right at the tail end of the pandemic, excited to read it. And then it took me a while to circle back to it. Started reading it a couple of days ago, and I read the entire thing in like 48 hours. It was such a quick just dive. I can't call it a fun read. It's bonkers. Mm. It was bonkers and gory. Um, direct or directed by written by Cassandra Kaw. And the concept of it is it's a haunted house tale, but told from a very, very flawed protagonist. A group of young people, I'm gonna assume 20 somethings, um, one of them happens to be loaded. And so they have rented an Airbnb. It's not even like an Airbnb because it's completely off market. They've rented a house, a really old, rundown haunted house in Japan. And they're from all over the globe. Like she, I think, is Japanese at roots, but and she speaks a little bit of Japanese, but she lives in the States. One of them is American. There's two from China, and they're just friends who met at the university. And they have come to Japan to get married, to celebrate their nuptials, because one, two of them are getting married, in this ridiculously haunted house that has this crazy backstory about this bride who was buried alive and that in order to quell her spirit, people have to sacrifice a new girl every year inside the house. So they're like, cool, that's where we want to get married because these people are kind of like my kindred of, you know, they love the haunted stuff. And then they get there and it just goes crazy from there. Again, two, it, it was like maybe two days it took me to read. I looked it up on Audible just because I was thinking about listening to it instead. And it's like a two and a half hour listen on Audible. So worth it. Just awesome. Hmm. So goddamn gory. Immediately, I was like, this has to have been optioned for a movie. And I looked it up. And yes, it has already been optioned for a movie. Or at least there was talk about it. So I assume that it has. This was a big, like, hyped up book when it came out in 2021 as being like one of the scariest books of recent years. And now, two years later, I'm circling back to it. Yeah, this was this was really scary. And it just hits you with the scares. So it was fun. That, Nothing but blackened teeth. That always makes me sad. Almost every good, like, horror book or cool thriller I've read in the last decade has already been optioned by the time I've read it. And I can think of almost none that I've ever seen the film to since. Like they're always optioned, taken off the table, but then they never get yep. made. Like literally I can think of very few of the ones that I read that I was excited about have ever made it to the screen. You're like, what the hell? They just get bought up. So part of the now machine. that I have been uh, working in this space, I can, I can point these things out. So if you see here, up at the top of some of these books that I have here, it says advanced reader copy. Mm. These are art copies and they go out to reviewers. And then they also go out to studios and people who are potentially going to option stuff months ahead of time, yeah. months ahead of time. And so that means that studios get to read these long before um, people like you and me for the most part. And so 
the studios kind of get the first crack at optioning things. And because of that, what I've learned is a lot of times the studios will option things in mass. Like they'll just buy up everything just in case the book takes off. That's not to say that they might decide not to renew the option in a couple of years. But basically, if it's something that you would see like on an end cap at Barnes and Noble, it's already been optioned before it came out because the studios will do that a lot of time. They'll just scoop it up in case somebody you know, the book takes off or it gets really popular because it's hard to predict where that's going to fall. So that's a lot of times why you see options taken and then they just sit with studios. And then there's other ones where it seems like the options are never available. Like somebody's just continuously renewing it and it will never get to where you want it to be black hole. So yeah. Yeah. And and I I'm will gonna, long want my black hole movie. I'm gonna blow up a pipeline uh to change the world, which I did watch, which isn't horror, but it's the best film I've seen this year. How to blow up a pipeline. So good. But actually by a horror director, because the previous movie was Cam and next movie is Faces of Death. So uh excellent freaking movie. I, I had a couple hours free when I was uh, going to drop off sound for something and uh and I was like, ooh, I could fit in a movie here. And it's really just tense. It's it's more like a Ocean's Eleven thriller, but done completely realistically about environmental activism and how you have to use terror. In a sense, you have only future might be using terrorism. Uh, anyway, great movie in theaters. Highly recommend that one. Um, a couple horror films. I, I, I watched about five. I've got lots of good stuff here for the new stuff. Uh, the one that was aesthetically interesting, but not and only kind of horror, which is uh, Inside, the Willem Dafoe art theft movie. That's, I was so shocked. We, we're going to talk about this later in the show, how quickly things are moving from theater to scream, streaming now. But that was one where it was in theaters like three weeks ago. And then I was looking on Amazon. I watched Missing, which was great, by the way. I had a lot of fun with that. But I saw that pop up available to rent. And I was like, wait, wasn't that just? Yeah, okay, I feel like it was, there it is. I mean, this definitely how was it because I almost bought, I almost rented it. It's Yeah. No, so it's a VOD. So I was just like for this, I was like, oh, I'm curious to watch this one. Uh, it's a perfect pandemic makes total sense why it exists uh in the same way that i mean glorious is more ambitious because glorious isn't just him right as we know but it made sense as a pandemic made movie this one is mm-hmm. the same kind of thing it's it opens with willem dafoe i feel like willem dafoe 20 years earlier would have just been even better but in in this kind of role but uh he is a high-end uh art theft he's helicoptered onto a roof in the opening shot breaks into this place. It's got Egon Schiele's and all this just amazing modern art that you recognize on the walls. He starts grabbing it all. He's got his little walkie-talkie. He's communicating with some guy. He gets to the door and the the, the system goes wrong. Like the, the passcode they had suddenly doesn't work and the guy on the other end's like, oh, fuck, man, I'm so sorry. You're fucked. Like, and just breaks communication. Now he's stuck in this high-tech uh, apartment where the guy who lives there, the art critic or whoever he is, who has those money is in a, you know, some in Saudi Arabia or somewhere and isn't back for a long time. So literally you're watching basically Castaway, but in a modern high tech apartment surrounded by beautiful art. And it's good. I mean, look, he's really good in it. It's It's got some interesting stuff where it does become horror. It, it is a, you know, the hard thing about movies is, man, this movie had, had they gone full horror in the last five minutes it would be almost an all timer for me because it was like it just needed a great big swing ending and it, it actually does the opposite it goes for the most minor quiet minimal ending imaginable which just makes everything feel that you've kind of suffered through a little bit like ah eh, it's not a bad ending it's just kind of a meh and unfortunately that really takes away but in the last act he is kind of you know he's losing his shit he has to like you know be very i think you would enjoy it because he he has to figure out things like there's no the water pipes are off 
And so he starts to realize the only way to get any water is every day for a few minutes, the, because it's a high-tech apartment, the plants are watered. There's a little spray. So he has to start trying to capture that every day to live off. And just how he's going to survive is really interesting. And his tree, and how he approaches, how he feels about art, because he's also uh, was a drawer, you know, liked to draw and stuff when he was younger, just never followed through with it. And But towards the end, he starts drawing this like black, uh, circle round and round on one of the walls and it becomes very it starts to become like very existential cosmic dread in the last act and I kept thinking oh it's going to push all the way there's a couple moments where like oh something really fucking crazy is about to happen and it just doesn't quite go there but it's solid it's just I'd, I'd, as a horror film I'd say it's okay as a just you know interesting character study it's a bit more successful so um, but that was you know it was an interesting one to watch uh, good build felt like a Paul Schrader film from a from the 70s, 80s, early 80s or something, but um, not quite the payoff. I think I'm still going to rent this. I had almost seen this one in theaters too, but it was gone so quickly. There's so, a couple of things yeah. about it that I think you would particularly enjoy inside it. Uh, I yeah. love my escape room movies. Yeah. I think that's what most intrigued me is I love escape rooms. Yeah, and and he is literally, I'm trying to think, there are a couple people he watches through the sc- screens, like the security cameras of the building that he can see. Otherwise, he's alone. It's a movie where they're not cheating it. They're not giving you big flashbacks of his life or anything. It's So I always respect that because that's a real challenge, filmmaking mm-hmm. challenge. Um, yeah, you can. What, what else do you see? I've, I've got a few more. Well, I got another brand new one that just came this uh-huh. week to Netflix that I watched last night and was pleasantly surprised mm. by. I had a blast with phenomena Hmm. not the argento buggy one this is phenomena spanish brand new film this is one that's like a netflix Hmm. exclusive just came out and the setup is it is three women who are all in their 50 60 somethings who have been working together for 20 years as a ghost hunting group Hmm. And they're constantly bickering Hmm. and they're constantly jabbing each other and it is so fun and funny but there's some really good scares it's basically like if the ladies from steel magnolias Hmm. were in the conjuring Hmm. and that sounds like such a weird pitch but it really worked the setup is that they've always all three of them and they all three have different skills like one is a psychic and one can connect to ghosts and then one is like this tech guru And they've been working together for 20 years and they've always worked with this priest who has kind of led the charge. And um, and one is there to kind of also one's speciality is dispelling what is the truth, like what could be what is not ghost, what is not demon like this could actually be like a real thing or it's just the wind, things like that. And so they've been working together for a really long time. They bicker constantly like siblings. They chain smoke. They're all just burned out cratchety you know older women and then the priest that they have been working for gets attacked while investigating this one case and gets into it winds up in the hospital in practically like a coma like he's really hurt and so they decide to go follow up on that case and see what's causing everything and that's the specific one that it focuses on so it's very much like the warrens Mm. but with these three bickering 50 year old women And it was so fun. Like, I just had a blast with this. It was more comedy than heavy scare. But that said, there were some really good scare moments. And it did go full horror in the third act. This is on Netflix now. It's dubbed. So it's an accessible watch. The dubbing did not bother me. And I'm usually quite annoyed by that a lot of the time. But this one, I just kind of moved in with it and went with it. 
apparently it is based on some real group in Spain called the Hepta group, which is my children are fighting. Um, it's based on something called the Hepta group, which is actually a real group of women who are ghost hunters in Spain. So yeah, it was really cool. I could easily see a stateside remake of this because this is something that I found to be really watchable and just a fun concept. Hmm. And that is phenomena now on Netflix. Um, there is a, uh, new streaming service that I'll teach you about. Um, let me mansplain Screenbox to you, Becca. I'm pretty familiar um, with Screenbox. You told me about, Thanks, you told me, you told me about think, it. So that's okay. I think I'm the one who like, so Screenbox is the brand new streaming service. Um, it's affiliated with Bloody Disgusting and they have been finding some pretty cool deep cut stuff that Elric and I have been definitely digging through and a lot of indie horror that I have not seen other places. Like I've definitely seen a lot of international stuff. And over the past couple of weeks, I've definitely talked about in Seminoid and Golden Dragon Village. And there was, oh gosh, I can't even remember the name now. There was some type of delicious black sex, occult, Satanist, have sex with a goat thing that I watched on there a couple of weeks ago that have I enjoyed. Have sex with a goat thing have sex with a goat thing somebody at home is screaming they're like a24 is lamb it's not lamb <laughs> if that movie had gone there it would have been better it's it would have been much better if there had been a scene where they were like well you have to have sex with the goat to bring about satan and she's like man yeah. cost of doing business and there we go so that's kind of connected to, to lamb this one's called family dinner uh this is really and this is on screen box? yeah so this is really neat because i had heard about this about a few months ago because Ant Timpson had posted updates that he's the executive producer of this. And it's a uh, film shot in uh, which country is it? I don't remember now if it was Austria. I think it's Austria, um, not Australia, but Austria and Ant, you know, is obviously the Kiwi director and producer, but he was an ex- EP on this. And I just remember him posting things and then it hit the festival circuit. And I remember seeing the poster and family dinner is a pretty generic, you know, title. So it's kind of like, Oh, I wonder what this is. Um, and this is a really like, especially if you like, Movies like Haneke, Midsummery, like it has a lot of things that I dig. It's very much minimalist, realistic horror, but um, and it has just a fantastic uh, kind of uh, performance by the. Yeah, yeah, you probably assume it's one of her first roles. Pia, here's Zegger, who is a teenager in this, but it's about a teenager who thinks she's you know overweight and is unhappy with you know her her body, and she goes to spend a Easter holiday with her aunt who has been estranged because was, is no longer married to like the husband that would have been her actual uncle, you know, blood uncle. And this woman, the reason she's going to her is this woman has written all these health books about diet and healthy cooking and how to kind of turn your life around. But she's kind of receded from public view in recent years. And she has a son, a teenage son, and she has this new husband who feels like, you know, almost like a character in Calvera or something very, very wiry and intense looking. Um, and they are in the middle of nowhere. They are out in a remote rural. So it's a rural kind of horror. And it actually does go fairly folk hard. There's a Wicker Man-esque thing of of trees stacked in the forest that she finds at one point that is clearly for some celebration she doesn't understand and she's you know coming from the city and she doesn't you know she doesn't know if her aunt will help her or not because she's nervous to ask and she's just a really nice totally normal teenage girl and things get so fucking weird like and i really appreciate the tone because i didn't know what it was going to be i kind of had somewhat low expectations for some reason when I push play because I was like, oh, it's just going to be like, it's going to be like what I thought the menu would be like weird cannibal thing or something. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And it is related to that, but the way it goes about it is mixture of that and things like Wicker Man and Midsummer, And it really pulls me in because it's really her and this, the basically the, 
the her cousin, this young boy, he is molly coddled by his mother like to no end. Like she cuts his food for him, and he's like, you know, sixteen or something, fifteen or something, and she cuts it, and she, you know, she'll put a blanket on him when he's at the dinner table and give him a cup. Like it's really weird how much she's babying him, whereas the new husband treats him pretty badly, and you know, probably there's probably some abuse there. But the guy, this young uh cousin keeps telling you you know the girl to fuck off and doesn't have any interest in talking to her but one day he just suddenly starts opening up and he's like i think my mother is gonna do something terrible to me and it comes out of left field because the mom's so nice to him but suddenly the boy's like i think something terrible is gonna happen to me and i don't know what but i just and she's like what no you're your aunt and then it just starts getting really menacing and it has a couple moments where i was like shit they go pretty far in this movie. Uh, so I don't want to say much more than that because it's actually just, it's it's definitely one of the better horror films I've seen this year and uh, has a really good vibe going. Uh, directed by Peter Hengel. It's his first film. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's Austrian. But um, yeah, I, I do recommend this. And as far as I know, the only place to see it right now is on Screenbox. So it must be um, you know limited to them initially is my guess. But yeah, this was one I was looking for. So this is actually what got me to sign up because I've rented stuff on Screenbox before this week. Like I've rented um, uh, Outwaters and things like that were mm-hmm. on there without joining, but this pushed me to join. So I am now, uh, I have my Screenbox so I can just check out whatever else is in there. Um, but yeah, so anyway, definitely recommending this one to people. Family Dinner. I have not watched it yet, but by the way, with family dinner, you just had me at Haneke and Midsommar. It's very much in that vibe. Odd combination, but I'm there for it. I wish I'd known it was an Easter film earlier because it's it's a total Easter movie. It's all about Easter. Like this could become one of those, hey, you have to watch this at Easter movies, which we could have used if I had known two weeks earlier. We were literally talking on Deep yeah. Cuts last week about how there aren't no, a no, lot no, of yeah. Easter horrors. Like we could name a couple and then one from an anthology and that was it. Yeah. So we got to add this one to the list for next year. But the one that I just found on Screenbox today that I was like, holy shit, you beautiful beast. I did not know you existed. There is an Asian remake of Cube on there. I saw that too. And, and I and I have not seen that. So I'm very curious. I have not. I have not heard anything yeah. about it. I, and so I love all the cube movies and yeah. so i was so excited to see it there so i think that is gonna have to be my yeah i kind of want to watch that too when i saw that image i was like oh i wonder what that's like because you would think that would make a lot of sense you know yeah it, it seemed like it yeah did. Let me, uh, you let so, me know on that one because i I'll i will it. and i will also say the other thing i know i'm gonna watch this week i just today got in the mail the new scream factory blu-ray of haunting of julia yeah i mean that's I my number one, one of my favorites so i'm excited to see this and it's never had so. good elements they've always been like the no. picture would be good but the sound was off or something and so this is a big restoration big deal I had a bootleg copy of this for a long time that I never watched. It was even under the old name Full Circle, yeah, and I never watched it because it was totally faded out, and it was painful to watch. So I've never actually seen it the whole way through. Yeah, so it, it's one of the that. best kind of grief movies. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's like Don't Look Now in that vibe. It's very good. Um, okay, so I'm answer. gonna I'm gonna keep going with the the reedy thinky stuff because you know how cerebral I am. I know, I know. This Who is reads where I am. more than one book a week? Well, I, I didn't. These are both comics. Mm. So, yeah, I got to um, pre-read some of Colin Bunn's upcoming stuff, which I was super excited about. So the first one I will talk about is Ghost Lore, which is coming up from Boom. And this is Colin Bunn. The whole setup of this is that a pastor and his family are in a car accident. And I'm not going to take you much past that because I don't want to spoil it. But they are in a car accident 
they come to, and two of them are still very much alive, but they are trapped inside the car and they realize that they're surrounded by ghosts. Hmm. And then Cullen's entire pitch for this one was based on the the question, what ghost stories do ghosts tell? Hmm. And so that's kind of where it is, is you get this feeling that there's something encroaching, but then it goes into these stories. And this, I absolutely love, this was super scary and fun and just an absolute trip. This is not out yet. This is coming soon. And then the other one that I checked out this week, which I will say this one like spoke to me just because it was everything that I love in the world. Ghost lore was good, but his second one that I read this week, Lamentation, this is coming out from Oni Press. The setup for this is that an actress, she's like a low, um, kind of, you know, low on the totem pole actress. She hasn't had a lot of roles. She shows up for this audition at this completely rundown theater. She doesn't even think it's open anymore. Tears in, it's all desolate, but she goes in and there's people up on stage and she's like, I'm here for the audition. And they're immediately like, oh, we all know who you are. We're honored that you're auditioning. You get the part immediately. And she's blown away and she's like, wait, you know who I am? What? And they throw her into rehearsals immediately until she says, you know, we've been rehearsing for a while. I need to take a break. And they're like, oh, you can't. I'm sorry. You can't leave. And then she realizes that they are all trapped there and they keep saying, you can't leave until the play's performed. And so it's like, it, it seems kind of hell or purgatory-ish. And then it gets real fucking trippy. And then you learn about the actress that she is there replacing and why these people have been rehearsing for a year and she's replacing one of the actresses. I loved this. This was super surreal, heady, hellish theater. And it's, yeah, this this hit a lot of my sweet spots. Colin, I'm just going to assume that you like wrote this one for me. So this is Lamentation and it is heading out really soon. I think both of these are being released um, within a month or two from Oni Press. And both of these are comics where they are coming out as issues. So yeah, be prepared to, to follow the series on both of them. They're great. Ghost Lore and Lamentation. And you liked Missing, you're saying? I really enjoyed Missing. Way more than I, and I say this with every single one of those internet movies. I said it with Unfriended. I said it with Unfriended to Dark Web, which I still stand by, is a really fucking scary movie. I've, I've actually put on my queue now to check out. It's so dark. It is, whereas Unfriended is like PG-13. It's still good. You know, it's still fun. I like it's it. still good. It's still good, but it's very horror light. Dark Web fucking goes there. It gets dark, really dark. And then I had enjoyed searching the first one produced by one of um, the students who graduated from the class I teach at USC the semester before I got there, Sabohanian. And so I, I had seen the first one and found it to be really good. The second one, I was worried that missing was going to kind of be a rehash of the same thing. Is it like a parent looking for a kid again? This is a kid looking for a parent. And I really enjoyed some of the twists this one took. I wasn't going to talk about it today on the show because it's not quite horror, but it's got some really good unexpected twists. And I will say some of the ways that they use technology in this one, I was not expecting. And to the point where I was like, oh, that's smart how they were doing some of it. Yeah, I, I think I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I liked it because mm -hmm. I liked it, except I thought the story, like I liked how it was done, but the central story was kind of lifetime. You like... The, the guy has taken her away and the daughter has to, I don't know. It's just that part was a little silly to me, but it worked. The presentation was great. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, okay. So this one is the real pick of the litter here. 
really, really want to spread some love on this one. And uh, I found out about it. I can't even remember who, but it was in the same way where somebody is just like, hey, this little underrated movie is now on Tubi. It's other places too, but I watched it free on the Tubi. Uh, and I told our friend Dick to watch I it. I love that you call it the Tubi. It's the Tubi. You can never just say Tubi. It's the Tubi. Um, the boob Tubi. That's what they used to I watched it on the Tubi. Um, okay. So this movie is called All Eyes. Um, and you've probably seen uh, you when you see the poster, you're like, oh, yeah, I feel like I saw that poster at some point. It's a monster with eyeballs all over its body and two guys just looking at it uh, in lawn chairs. Maybe right now, this is a low budget film uh, indie directed by Todd Greenlee and written by, I assume, her brother, Alex Greenlee. Uh, man, this was a, so much fun. And and I just for the right kind of listener, this will be one of their favorites of the year. But like, it's not going to be for everyone because it's just like you have to be able to get into, you know, slightly more indie fear. But uh, it opens with a guy who has a very famous podcast uh, that is uh, live. Like, basically, he does live t- talk kind of podcast on on a network where he will talk to people who believe they have had real paranormal experiences or uh, psychological issues and so it opens with one of his kind of recurring guests who believes he was followed by dark shadows and he's talking to him live on air and it's like a follow-up episode and to one of their highest rating episodes and this guy does very well he's on an npr type network and the guy comes on it's a youtube kind of catch-up and uh something really bad happened it all goes very wrong for that guy and this youtube uh, this podcaster is kind of blamed for even though he didn't really truly do anything wrong, but it kind of seems maybe exploitive or whatever, he basically gets a show taken away. When you look this up, it says disgraced host. It's like he's not really disgraced. It's not like he did anything wrong, really. He's just, you know, maybe he's taking advantage of his guests. That could be questionable. He uh so he's basically loses his show on the opening few minutes of this and it's pretty intense like you're like oh okay what kind of movie i have no clue what kind of movie this is going to be at this point and i'm not going to give away this movie at a certain point because it's definitely uh has some surprises uh he gets a so he's unemployed again kind of at home all bummed out and he gets a letter from uh usually he'd get all these letters from people wanting to be on the show and he gets this letter it's like in a like a funny card from somebody in middle america can't remember which state it was kentucky or somewhere i believe um who it's a farmer who says my wife was your biggest fan she listened to you every night whereas i actually hate your show and think you're a big dick but she passed away and uh it would i think she would have really wanted me to have uh shown you that next to my farm there's this monster in the woods and i'm planning on killing it and if you want to come and do a story on it you can come down and if you come uh on a wednesday and meet me at this post office i'll give you tw- a check for 25 grand you know on the spot so that's the setup and he he gets like i'm not doing that but then his producer and the podcast stuff's actually done pretty realistically. I was like, yeah, that's not a bad depiction of po- the kind of network world of podcasting. Mm-hmm. And she she kind of talks him into like, look, just don't go there for the monster. That's probably bullshit. Because this isn't a world where that stuff exists. In the It's a real set in the kind of real world. She's like, you know, go because this could be a heartfelt story about a older man talking about his wife. And you could, could be your comeback, you know. So he decides, okay, I'll do this solo podcast. I'll go to this town. And he goes and meets this guy. And the guy is just one of my favorite performances of the year. This guy, Ben Hall. He's been a lot. Uh, he's like, you know, probably 60s playing this guy, Don. And he has a house. Uh, so they basically go out into the middle of nowhere. And he has a house that is entirely booby-trapped. He has booby-trapped his own home. He's totally paranoid that, you know, there's this monster living out in the forest. He takes deck chairs and they sit there waiting to show him the monster. And they drink beers and they sit there. So this movie, in one sense, feels like the battery as a buddy film kind of thing it is kind of comic at the start it's definitely got a lot of conspiracy movie and then it actually kind of 
delivers in its way as a monster movie. So I, I would I'm I'm kind of calling it Battery Meets Deadstream from last year because Dead because you know, Deadstream was the disgraced YouTuber who who goes in and it has a sequence about the halfway point that I was just not expecting. It, it takes a massive turn at a certain point and becomes almost a different genre for about 30 minutes. And it's pretty intense and, and funny. And just, it's a really, really cool under the radar horror film that I want everyone who likes anything I just said to check out. And like I said, free on Tubi. It's also on YouTube, on Amazon and things like that. But uh, again, it's probably like 85, 90 minutes. It was made not for a lot of money, but it doesn't feel, look cheap because they they do a good job of making it look like a probably a bigger than it was type of budget shot during the pandemic. Um, I I just had so much fun, and I I told our friend Dick about it, and the next day he watched it, and he's like, "Oh, this is fantastic!" And it's like, so I I was, I was like, "Okay, good. It's not just in my head. Just a really fun. I I really enjoy it, and I think it's um it definitely they have made another film previously that I've never heard of, so I'm gonna try to find that. Um, but I would expect them to get to make a bigger movie now. Um, because this one was a lot of fun. So that's called All Eyes, as in All Eyes on You. Um, because it was kind of initially about you're getting all the hits on YouTube. You have all the eyes, you know, and then it translates to this weird monster that they talk about in the in the forest. So you will definitely find this interesting. I, I, yeah, you had me at monster. Yeah, that was I it. think you'll like, dig. I'm this. in for monster. Um, so I just added it to my list for this week. Like I just put it on the queue. Yeah, so. check that one out. I've got one more after that. Well, I've got I've got one thing that I'll quickly yeah. plug, and then I've got another film that I'll talk about. So I will say. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here breaking it down, but the unexplained with William Shatner that has Mm. come to Netflix, there are two seasons of this. Now, usually I would not mention that I watch a lot of like, you know, haunted places, you know, spooky spaces, things that aliens supposedly did shows on the show because it's not fiction horror films. Exactly. So a lot of times I'll just put shows like that on in the background, like, you know, haunted places or dark tourists, you know, I'll just throw it on in the background while I'm working during the day. I threw on the unexplained with William Shatner a couple of weeks ago, and I have deeply enjoyed this show. So I just wanted to give it a mention because this isn't like an ancient aliens where I'm like kind of just listening because I think that everybody's bullshit. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that in this, but it's presented really well. And there's a lot of kind of cool, dark stories in this that I haven't heard of before. They did like half of the episode on creatures on strange creatures was just on Mothman. You don't get a lot of Mothman action. It's always like, we're going to talk about Chupacabra. We're going to talk about werewolves. Mothman folks. There was a whole thing about these like mysterious stairs in New Mexico. And I'd never even heard the story before. I started watching this one specifically because they have a whole episode on Oak Island. And, you know, I'm Mm. obsessed with my treasure hunting stories and especially Oak Island, because I have seen every single Oak Island episode and I will go full fangirl if I ever see any of the guys from that show. But that said, this really, it gets into different territories. It goes to like cults and weird buildings. And yeah, so I'm getting different info. So I at least wanted to just give this a mention because it has definitely filled the white noise of my last two weeks and I've rather enjoyed it. So I hope they keep making it. Plus it's Shatner doing a very Shatner-esque delivery for everything. So Hmm. I will will continue to watch this one. But the film that I watched that I will cap with here is FX2. And I figured I would mention this because I looked and like eight months ago, I watched FX, the very first Mm -hmm. one. 
and discussed it on this show and said, well, I'm going to watch the second one next week. And then shit happened and things came up and another stack of DVDs arrived and something else released. And oh my God, I have to watch this tiny little Tyhar. And then I never got to FX2 until I discovered this week that it was streaming on Tubi for free. And then I suddenly went, well, if it's free, I'm watching effects on Tubi. So 1991. I had really enjoyed the first effects movie, which was from late to mid 80s. Um, same two characters, Brian Brown and Brian Donahue. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which I, he's he's next level in this movie. Yeah, I'll great. get to that in a sec. But Raleigh, who is our special effects person who is being chased by a criminal in the first one and is using cool special effects to get his way out of the situation. He has retired in this one until one of his top friends says, hey, Raleigh, do you still do that special effects stuff? I need you to stage a scene because we're trying to hunt down a serial killer. And he wants him to stage this elaborate shower scene with a girl across from the serial killer's apartment to entice him over into a crime scene so the cops can like see him there and then arrest him. And while they are setting this up, somebody kills a cop. And that's like your intro into it. That's like the first five minutes of the movie. And then not only has Raleigh seen who the killer was, but Raleigh is trying to hunt down who killed his friend. And it gets total like mafia, crimes, all types of really cool stuff. And so now he can use his cool special effect ability to get him out of all of these tight squeezes with the people who are trying to kill him and to ascertain information about who the killer is and the organization that he works for. But of course, he has to call Brian Dennehy again, who by this time is retired from the police force and is working as a private eye. And then Brian Dennehy's role in this movie basically consists of him collecting information, but he does this by going through his network of the many women in the city that he has slept with. Hmm. Like every single bit of information where he's like, hey, I know somebody who works in the DA office. Smash cut. He's in a scene going, hey, remember how we used to date Loretta? Yeah, you never called me after the one night. And then, and then it's like the next scene, he's with another girl. And then he's with the assistant district attorney. And you get the idea that they hooked up. And it was like, like there's this old Mickey Avalon song from like a year ago that's like, by 1 a.m. I'll be fucking him. Hmm. That's brian in this movie and he is just so smooth but it, that's kind of his thing is he has had relations with every woman and he is now using that to his advantage and they all still love him and think oh my god let's go get chinese food it was wild so anyways through all of his many love connections he is able to get information for raleigh who is using all of his special effects skills to figure out who killed his friend this was fun. I can't say it was as fun as the first one. It definitely retread a lot of the same ground, let the characters kind of do their thing again. There was very much kind of a we're getting too old for this shit quality to it, where they had to go back in and do the jobs that they had retired from. But it was fun. If you enjoyed the first FX film or you're just looking for like a really fun kind of horror infused action film from late ladies, early 90s. FX 1 and 2 are an absolute trip. I know that there is a double DVD out with both of these films on them. But yeah, Tubi. If you're willing to watch some extra um, commercials, you can just watch it right now. FX 2. And there's a giant killer robot clown. Out. Yeah, uh, when I was 13, that's when I would have seen this. I, I think I liked 2 better than 1 when I was young because it was 
them as a team more because the first one yeah they, they have to kind of it's cat and mouse between them a little bit yeah because yeah. brian thinks that raleigh has something to do yeah. with it and he thinks he might be a criminal this one is very much like it had like a 48 hours buddy cop yeah. movie and when you're young i love that the first one is definitely a better movie don't get me wrong but as i and these were two of my favorite movies when i was like i loved this world of the FX just probably because it was the makeup artist and, and Brian Brown's very uh, charismatic, you know, cool guy. Mm-hmm. I remember I think back to cocktail. He was very cool as the, the guy who teaches Tom Cruise how to make. The- oh, I just got really sad thinking about what happens to him. I know. Thanks. Yeah, it is really sad. Uh, brought me down to make you feel better remember how hot elizabeth shoe was in that movie i i I still think about elizabeth shoe in the cocktail i don't know why um so we all have our movie um elizabeth (laughs) shoe's still hot so don't get me wrong she's still great um the last one i saw man i I, it's going to give me an idea for a show episode for us to do one day the subgenre switcheroo i think we should do a whole episode of like switcheroo movies uh this is a i'm writing it down i'll put it on the calendar obviously and then uh, we'll have to yeah we'll have to think work out what it is but obviously with the core the key movie being from dust till dawn that i think even though there had been switcheroos all throughout history that was the one where i think at least for my sake i hadn't heard anything about that movie sat in the theater and could not believe the twist it took because it was not it was not in my mind that it was going to go there because i hadn't seen trailers or anything at the time so it was a great switcheroo uh this is uh, martyrs three times oh yeah there were three <laughs> times in martyrs where i went wait where are we now okay but that one's okay. less for entertainment value than like holy like upping and, craziness i guess but you're right and i will say martyrs even though that it shifts three times it's tonally consecutive yeah. across all of them like it always feels dark gritty heavily extreme the the tonal shift from the beginning of Dust Till Dawn to where it goes when they arrive, where they're headed, the beginning is a straight up like rape, revenge, rampage yeah. 70s film, and then it goes completely bonkers yeah, crime. in the second act. So, so yeah. but there's obviously like I haven't thought beyond just calling it the switcheroo subgenre, but obviously we could dig into that and find more. But this is look, if you go on my letterbox, I it's it's complicated how I rate things. I am always rating them. <laughs> letterbox it's complicated. Oh, here's the complicated people always want to like like if you get three stars it means it's a watchable decent movie but like i'm also rating things against themselves so if super mario brothers gets three and a half that's not three and a half in the same way that some 1950s classic movie is three and a half that's three and a half and yeah, in, in a lane of children's films and expectation so just like this movie i might have given this two and a half stars but i was entertained on a level of three and the last 10 minutes might even be three and a half but uh, but you know, you might go on my letterbox and go, Oh, I don't want to watch that. But trust me, I think you do want to watch this movie. It's called The Price We Pay. It has the worst art of the year. Well, there's different posters, but if you go on letterbox, it is a picture of Stephen Dorff's face and Emil Hirsch's face, like, you know, beautifully painted, just two of them looking at you. And you're like, Why would anyone watch whatever movie, let alone it's so not the movie that you're about to watch. It deserves a much better poster than that saying a lot. Oh harder. yeah. That looks it's like cheesy. heavy, like some type of farmer drama okay. about <laughs> people who are on a farm having drama. Yeah, Like why don't studios yeah. test that? They should take this folk painting and, and have people like you go, it looks like a farming drama. And then I will tell you what this movie, is. this is a Ryu Kitamura film. So already you wouldn't know that the guy made midnight meat train. This is his new film. Uh, yep. It is. Like we use the word bonkers sometimes here, but this movie is bonkers. Especially, sometimes, uh, sometimes, like every you should start keeping track, or we have every to take a shot every minutes. time we say it. Um, but okay, so this movie opens uh, with a young woman 
played by what was her name? Her name is Gigi. Emily. No, this is Gigi Zimbardo. And she has gone to a uh, pawn shop, a really rough one, you know, and she has already been pawning a lot of stuff because she's in debt to the the sleazy owner. And so she goes into the very back room and it's all very kind of like, you know, it's about to get gross. And he's like, well, you can pay me off some other way. He's got the open Hawaiian shirt. He's hitting all those cliches. Uh, and on one of the little security cameras, suddenly uh, three guys, four guys, three guys with masks have come in and they're robbing the place and they start shooting and killing people. And one is Emil Hirsch, who's kind of off in this movie, a little psycho kind of character. It's a little much at times, his performance. Stephen Dorff, who's really solid and he has had a really good last few years. He's getting he's one of those actors who's really taking on interesting things. And is impressing me with kind of his indie picks of the last few years. And he's solid in this. Uh, they come in. Uh, they are robbing the place. She tries to get away. They grab her. Their getaway driver takes off out of fear. So they take her as a, as their hostage. Uh, one And there's one other guy with them who gets shot in the leg. They take her car and say, just drive. And she just keeps driving. They don't know what they're going to do. Emil Hirsch is the kind of like, we got to kill everyone and get away. It's, it's very fucking cliche. The first. It's not bad. But it's kind of like a bit of a yeah, 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 okay, uh, kind of heist. Let's go drive off into the middle of nowhere. They drive off in the middle of nowhere. They get uh, there's a, there's a lane block. They drive down this long road onto this estate, and this is where the movie starts to get more interesting. They're gonna hole up for a while because Emil Hirsch's brother's been shot. Stephen Dorff's like, I've got this. We're gonna go here, find out what the deal is, and then we'll finish this score that we've done. And all the way while the girl's obviously worried what's going to happen to her. Um, and Dorf seems like, you know, decent guy in this, like, even though he's a criminal, he's not a killer. Uh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Movie you've seen a bunch of times. That means switcheroo's coming. I'm not going to go too into the switcheroo, obviously, because that would be so I won't go to where it really goes, but I'll get you in. Uh, they go in. There's this young boy who's probably like 15, 16. He's cleaning up a staple and they're like a stable rather. They're like, can we hide out in one of your empty rooms? And he's like, I guess my grandpa's not here right now. And, you know, uh, you know, something weird's going on because he's moving some giant weird crate thing, but you don't know what the what is. Uh, and it starts building uh suddenly emil hirsch kind of leaves the rest of them and goes i'm gonna go look around the place and in one of these stables he finds this like entry panel he opens it up he goes down a long uh like red light is coming from down there he goes down this long ladder he literally says <laughs> because it was almost if it was playing in a theater i think people would laugh because let's see how far down the rabbit hole goes and he says to himself <laughs> by himself in a room he says that out loud and then goes down is that brad dwarf no, no that's emile hirsch which is just oh it funny. sounds like a dwarf line oh, yeah. but i'll take it that's probably doing a dwarf uh anyway he goes down and that's from there on it, it, he or he i can actually can tell you this much because it still doesn't give away anything he finds like it's almost like old prison cells like almost bars and stuff and empty and people are clearly down there but he doesn't know why and he keeps going down there and it takes a turn uh that at first is kind of like okay that's weird and dark and kind of fun mess up totally different genre it's not even close to a crime film it becomes a i don't even want to say because it'll just ruin it for those who watch it but uh i'll try to give a couple clues because there's more characters who start to get introduced because we're in this other genre movie at this point there is a tall woman I still don't know really what she is. And she's got like weird scarring. And she's like, in real life, I think the woman who plays this role, Erica Irvin, she's like six foot seven or something. And it's one of the freakier creations I've seen in the last 
little while. It, pretty intense and weird. I'm not going to say exactly what she does, but it's just one of those things you're like, I don't even know if I understand some of the plot in the second part of the story, but it is fun. But I have to mention, because uh, I didn't really, I hadn't seen this guy in so long. The actor Vernon Wells plays like the grandpa that the kid's waiting for when he comes back. And Vernon Wells is best known to all of you, uh, all of you 90s or 80s kids like us uh, from being the bad guy who Arnold Schwarzenegger says, let off some steam, Bennett, in Commando. He's Bennett, the guy wearing the chain mail and the Australian mustache, a great Australian actor. He's in a Mad Max film, too. Uh, So it's very exciting to see him again as uh, one of these kind of weird family things. I'm not going to tell you what they do or what they're up to down there. I don't even know if I fully understand. Uh, There's about 40 minutes of that kind of craziness, but then it's the last, like, 10 minutes that kind of is actually incredibly gory and fucked up. And and I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty interesting. Hard to rate a movie like that. So my low letterbox is not a reason not to watch it. It's more just like, I don't know if any of this lands, but man, they certainly go for it by the end. And it is complete switcheroo movie. So, uh, you know, we got to, it's given us an idea for an episode, but I would recommend people who are into that, you know, go. it has a straight to VOD vibe to the start of the movie and the kind of subgenre it is. But I think it kind of pays off, kind of fun. So wow. terrible title. The uh, price we pay sounds real generic. The post is terrible, but it's not anything like either of those things. This looks bonkers. It, it really Absolutely. is by the end. And I love the director. Okay. Yeah. I'm I mean, in. that's the thing. It, they should be putting his name front and center to sell this kind of thing. I, I don't really understand yeah. the thinking behind how this is being presented, to be honest. Um, but it was a few bucks on Amazon. Watched it late, late, late last night. And I honestly, I'm not even joking. I think I blinked, you know, when you're tired, but you're enjoying yeah. saying, I think I blinked for like 20 seconds and I think I missed the why. <laughs> like, what's the, what's the crazy <laughs> shit? Cause I'm watching it go, wait a minute. Has this ever been explained why the fuck they're even doing these crazy things? And I, I, I swear it's either I missed it. So I'm gonna have to. I might have to rewatch it again to find out the why. Uh, but yeah, I had I did have fun watching it. Um, so nice wow, time. I I no longer um put rankings on my letterbox. I no longer use star system because I always ended up going back and changing them, and then I would like fixate on it. Like it mm. became a a thing of anxiety for me, where I'd be like, I gave that movie a three, but now two months later, I really think it was like a three and a half. And then I'd go back and change. And then I started thinking about other movies. And I am so damn wishy-washy with movies where a lot of them sit with me. And then a lot of times it'd go the reverse where like I would start thinking about it. The more I think about it, the less I'd like it. And then I'd want to go back and change the ranking. And then as a filmmaker myself, I'm like, this is just stupid in general. Why would I even subject others to this, which, you know, gives me such pain. So I just quit. I think it depends. It's my diary now. You can see what i'm watching yeah, I li- but i'm not gonna tell you i like it for myself like i don't care like but i do think if somebody looked at it, they they are not really understanding how i'm thinking because it's i like charting how i felt like i love it when you watch something five years ago and then it changes on your rewatch yeah. uh, good or bad sometimes you know on rewatch some movies and i so i really do like the function i get it though I, the people I, you're not alone i have multiple friends who i know no longer do that but i think i always will but i don't think people could expect accuracy from my you know from my stars because really it is like how i'm feeling it's not about the quality of the movie it's it's really yeah personal but i love letterbox still my favorite app on the internet yeah 
Uh, I like it just because it it lets me keep track of everything yeah. that I'm watching. Indispensable for so, podcasting yeah. in shows and stuff. But yeah, so so I watched some interesting stuff. A couple switcheroos really, because All Eyes has a bit of switcheroo to it, to be honest, but not not completely. Um, but yeah, so I actually was surprised. I ended up I don't know. I didn't plan on many of these, so I was just like some of them just kind of fell into the lap this week. So that was fun. Well, shall we vampire? Yes, let's let's go to someone who we've been wanting to talk to for a while, but now made the most sense. Diddly, 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 diddly. All right, we're very excited uh, this week to be joined by the director of one of my children's favorite movies of all time, which is not Renfield, <laughs> which you won't be allowed to see for another decade. But Batman Lego is legendary in this home. Uh, welcome, Chris McKay. How you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Thank you so much. That is uh, awesome to, to hear. Unlike a lot of people who probably say that and are full of shit. I know for a fact. I know. I, I think I, I heard I, from you a year ago. <laughs> you did. Yes. When you were talking about what, uh, your editor. Yeah. yeah. One of my students. An editor. Yeah. yeah. No, mine was um, somebody who was in one of my past movies was doing an audition for you. And she texted me and she was like, you're friends with Chris McKay. Um, do you think you could let him know I'm good? And I was like, wait, what do you mean I'm friends with Chris McKay? <laughs> and she was like, you guys follow each other. And I was like, I follow him because I'm like an Uber fan. I had no idea he followed. <laughs> that, that was that was amazing. No. Yeah. But, but <laughs> as part of the just... entry, I would say like you're what's interesting about your filmography, even especially now is you've touched so many different subgenres, like science fiction. We have superhero in different ways, both animated and upcoming. And then we're also now dealing with horror comedy, which is like, you know, and, and action. You know, it's also an action yeah. film, very firmly. Uh, all these things. I think horror comedy's always probably been the hardest to pull off well. And that's why we only, the ones we have that are classics are stone cold classics. Yeah, yeah. And like, mm -hmm. we, unlike, usually, you know, the format of the show, usually we up top don't usually talk about our guest movies until we're with the guests but i think this time we will both be talking about how much you know just kind of our experience because it was one of the most entertaining in theater experience i've had a long time uh i'm obviously somewhat biased but also a hard judge because of the cage factor <laughs> the theater was packed that was the beautiful thing is they sat us in like the reviewer section so everybody's like sitting by themselves they're not even like there with friends it's every person is like by yeah, themselves yeah. and everybody was just howling like it was just a beautiful theatrical how they, experience um, how they screened uh, lolita if you ever see the photos of how they did kubrick's lolita it was like they couldn't have men and women sitting next to each other so it'd be like guy guy girl girl it was very strange it wasn't quite that restrictive, but um, but like like you know like I'm a huge Cage fan, and I think there was the possibility that that could also go south. And when I was watching this, I I really think I think this is like top tier, you know, cult performance by him, and and yeah. loving. Yeah, he was he was a dream uh, to work with. He was amazing, and yeah, I mean, I, I get I you know I get bummed out by sometimes the way people treat Cage as sort of like almost like a joke. You know, mm -hmm. there's like there's the, there's that kind of thing with. You know, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the guy puts himself out there. Mm -hmm. Like the oh guy's one of the last like actors who really like just kind of is a, he he wants to do new things. He wants to try stuff. His body of work is so diverse. If you just think about all the different things that he's done, you know, he'll do he'll do something very avant garde. He'll do this a line drive down the middle, like romantic comedy movie or you know, National Treasure and things like mm -hmm. that, where he's very you know he's got very controlled performances but he's, he's always wants to try new things and he's just he's so enthusiastic about making movies i mean this is the thing that just was 
from day one, he just loves being on set. He loves creating. He loves, he loves the feeling of like that, that, you know, kind of like, uh, he calls it that super eight feeling. Mm -hmm. Like he wants, he wants movies to feel like when he was making movies, when he, with his, with his cousins and his friends when he was a kid. And, and so to be around him, to be around that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of genuine enthusiasm is, is, is really inspiring. And you could tell he was throwing so much of himself into this because like Elric, I think, where were we? Where he referred to himself as the Klaus Yeah, Kinski. West Coast. He was, he was West, West Coast, Coast Kinski. Klaus. It was the was that, California Kinski. I think yeah. it was Colorado was that, Space. Unless it may it was have been the Mandy. It may have been the Mandy yeah. screening. Um, but yeah, I remember hearing that and then watching him do the whole Nosferatu bit at the beginning and how much flourish, like the audience where they were howling in a lot of Cage's performances were his vocal inflections where he would be mid sentence and just go (laughs) and then keep going. And it was just such a weird, like acting moment that he was doing. And it worked so well for the character. It was almost like this self-indulgence back into himself, but it worked so well for this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's a gaslighting narcissist. So yeah. (laughs) Totally, totally work. I want to go way back to the beginning on this because um, you did something that is hard in this industry, which is um, get a horror comedy off the ground because studios are always kind of weary of them for the most part. So I would love to know how this script came to you. And this is the other weird thing. Looking at this, I suddenly realized... This script was written by somebody that my husband does Krav Maga with, um, Ryan Ridley. Um, And I was suddenly like, wait, Ryan wrote this? Um, (laughs) I'd love to know kind of how the script came to you and, um, you know, how did you get this going over at Universal? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, horror comedies are uh, uh, very hard to do. And I think people just in general these days are allergic to comedies, period. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But, but, you know, and like Alec was saying, you know, there's like a handful of, you know, classic movies, but there's a pretty steep drop off after that. And so I think they were very wary. They were, you know, they're worried about everything, the R rating mm-hmm. and, and the, the, you know, the, the gore and horror and action and all that kind of thing. I mean, I, I was, you know, this was not something I developed. This is something that kind of came, you know, uh, it was a script that was sent to me. And um, I think the thing that I was really impressed by was that was the idea of uh, uh, the challenge of trying to, make Dracula a, a um uh you know a, a, a you know a metaphor for narcissism for toxic workplace you know bad but boss from hell like that that the challenge of being able to do that and do, and and trying to find a way to do it uh uh you know we're talking about cage and his performance um to try to do it where you could you could where he could be funny you would you would sort of you know the 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 uh you know, the, the comedic detachment from um you know dracula a little bit uh, the ironic detachment um would be you know you know could be there but you would also get like you could also have him feel hurt i wanted to create i wanted him to feel like real you know like go through real human emotions at times and 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 you know cage was the right person to be able to do that because he just i think there's just moments that i think where he just goes he just flows from being been, from being really funny and and you know petulant and childish and all these kinds of things that are that are you know f- that kind of funny to see Dracula being but it, but it, but it, but because he's he's doing it because he's hurt it's not just being silly he's actually he's actually feeling pain and he's feels abandoned and he's he's he doesn't know how to express you know his anger he's expressing his anger like a child you know or or you know again like a bat like a like a toxic narcissist, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a, you know, in a codependent relationship. Like he's like, 
hundred, you know, he's just, he's being that guy. And that's, you know, that being able to, the, the, looking at the script and look at what Ryan and, and Robert Kirkman did, those are the things that got me really interested in this. And then mm-hmm. the idea of being able to play with, uh, with horror and, you know, like go, go for it, you know, go for an R-rated movie. I mean, the R-rated movies don't come off, come around no. very often in this way. I mean, the, most everyone wants you to do PG-13. So being able to do something that's an R-rated movie and being able to push the envelope, go for it and do it practically as much as possible. Um, and, and you wonder and if people know that, like, and I think watching it, like even I don't, cause I just stayed away from, I think I watched the first like 20 seconds of the trailer and then I was like, okay, I'm good. I know what I'm in for. And then sitting in the theater, <laughs> you're the t- kind of tight wire you're walking is it, it, the payoffs are, it's just so much higher because I'm watching something that I'm laughing at. And then suddenly the entire body explodes or the arms are being t- like, there's so many gags that, uh, in any kind of horror film would be, you know, in a Tucker and Dale version, right. Would still be funny and great. <laughs> but when it's Nicolas Cage doing it, it, it just ups the ante, but it, like, I don't know if people everyone understands how much gore is in this movie. And it's like, so I want to make sure that's one thing that people come away from this episode going. It's like, you know, probably one of the most gory, fun movies. Easily. You know, in a very long time. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, every time someone like, uh, you know, sends me a text or, or a DM or something like that saying, hey, I'm going to take my kids to go see Renfield. I'm like, <laughs> okay, just just so you guys know, just to be absolutely clear. <laughs> so you know what you're in for. It really, truly is a... Like, you know, we're, you know, people explode, like priests explode and heads explode and things like that. We decapitations, everything. I try to, I try to warn people as much as humanly possible that we're having, but you know, we're doing it in the splat stick. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's Peter Jackson's dead alive. It's, it's uh, evil, evil dead too. Sam Raimi, you know, it's, it's all that kind of, it's, 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 it's that kind of splat stick humor that hopefully, you know, what is, is what, you know, it's, it's action that it continues to escalate and, well, and the good fun. ones still have emotion, like a brain dead or uh, yeah. things like, oh, yeah, right. brain dead. you know, you know Return of the Living Dead. Well, but yeah. brain dead and like, uh, I think especially things like Raimi, they they always have a bit of emotion to the core. Like, you know, there's some mm-hmm. there's some emotional story that is also you're very invested. In. And I found Nicolas Cage, like you said, he's he is hurt that the, he thinks and he hasn't learned much. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you can he's be thousands of years old, but you haven't learned yeah. much. You know, yeah, <laughs> not much growth. <laughs> Well, that seems very consistent for, you know, I mean, again, you're dealing, you know, when you're dealing with people like that, you know, uh, oftentimes these people, they're the most worldly people in the world. You would think that they have learned something, but actually they're, they're, they're incredible children. Yeah. Art, you know? Well, I want to talk about horror a little bit, just in terms of your origin, because uh, before you keep on with the movie, just like, did you, is this something that, cause you know, obviously most people know you through coming up, you know, editing the Lego movie and then into that world. And those movies obviously take a lot of work and a lot of time. Uh, my, my kids were totally psyched. I was talking to you tonight when I was like, is the guy who made Lego Batman? They were like, seriously. <laughs> and yeah, so they were upset. I didn't take them to see Renfield. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I started, I, I was the guy who, uh, uh, you know, I, I grew up on, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter mm-hmm. and David Cronenberg and George Romero and uh, Joe Dante and um, you know Stuart Gordon. I mean, you know, I, I when I was a kid, I you know I, I you know I got to go see Reanimator in a movie theater. Yeah, you know, I snuck into to that and uh, you know and, and Stuart Gordon was a Chicago guy. I grew up in you know in, in the suburbs of Chicago, and so that was like something close to home. And um, and you know Henry Porter serial killer was was coming out at that time, and also Chicago. You know, <laughs> be, you know, be, be able to see that, you know, in, yeah, in, in a movie theater in Chicago, you know, in the, in where they shot a lot of that stuff. Um, and I, you know, uh, it was, it was filmmakers like that and, and Stephen King, you know, a lot of, a lot of Stephen King, 
um, and Peter Straub, like, you know, just read a lot of, of horror, you know, and I went to, you know, I studied, you know, um, I, I studied movies by going to library a lot and, and reading about, you know, the, the old horror filmmakers and, mm-hmm. and, you know, books, you know, um, you know, Robin Wood wrote this book called, uh, Viet, uh, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan, which is all mm-hmm. about kind of like this, you know, the specter of, of, you know, horror, you know, what horror movies were talking about, uh, you know, and that always really intrigued me, what the messages were that were, you know, in, in horror movies. And I saw The Exorcist at a really young age. It's on TV. And I was like babysitting and I, and I was that, you know, it, it scared the hell out of me. I could, you know, I grew up, I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, like I was just, you know, traumatized by uh, the images from The Exorcist. And that's just stuff that, you know, when it hits you at a certain age, it's like that you, it's, it's, that's, the, it just makes you want to like chase that and try to, you know, recreate that. That's the stuff that, you know, for me, I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to make those kinds of movies. I think every, I think all the best filmmakers, you know, uh, Spielberg is a good example. Like there's not a, he hasn't done like a real horror movie, you know, since maybe like argue war of the worlds or something like that, but he's a horror movie filmmaker. Like just his, the, you know, there's horror, there's horror movie scenes in color purple, like, mm-hmm. you know, the way that he, the way he stages stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, you know, you can find moments that are just, you know, at its heart, the way, you know, that he, uh, that it's a horror filmmaker making those scenes and, and, you know, presenting those ideas and the way you photograph stuff. Munich, there's horror. There's yeah, Munich's one scenes. of his best directed yeah. movies, I think. It's, it's, that movie is insanely well directed. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. crazy. And it's just, yeah, but there's so much suspense and, and you know, and, and horror, you know, on, on some level. And that's, I mean, that, the thing that's what I also love about horror is that, you know, you can have, you can make something as you can make Texas Chainsaw or Poltergeist or something like that, or you can make, you know, hereditary or midsummer, you know, you can do that's you know, horror take, you know, there's some, it's such a big tent Yeah. when it comes yeah. to horror, as far as like what, you know, what, uh, you know, how, how you know, just how many different kinds of films and how, how and how, how thoughtful or not thoughtful it is. And that's what I've always loved about it is just that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's depth and breadth. I think. So how did you get into first making films? Like what was the thing that made you say, I'm, I want to be on the other side of the camera, like stepping from the audience to actually doing it. I think it was, you know, it was, it was I, my mom was a big Alfred Hitchcock fan mm. and she would talk to me a lot about seeing Alfred Hitchcock movies when she was a kid. And so I think that, um, and I think that right around the time where my mom introduced me to like watching the Academy Awards with her, I think they were giving some sort of either, either Hitchcock was still alive or it was like a posthumous. He, he got you know, some sort of lifetime thing towards the end. So it's he, probably that it was, yeah. So there's something like that where I saw him and she was talking about what the movies meant to her and mm. that sort of thing. And I, and I, so I just tried to, you know, read about Hitchcock and absorb that stuff. And I got to see, um, John Carpenter's, uh, I want to say the first Carpenter movie I saw might have been Assault on Precinct 13. Mm. And it was all of the, the way he used the camera and the moving camera stuff. I just got really, entranced by that so when i went to take my parents super eight camera out to make a movie i was just you know weaving the camera around and doing all the stuff and you know using the foreground and background like just imitating like everything he did in, you know southern precinct 13 and halloween and stuff like that just using like you know it, it just in and, and i have a halloween three tattoo oh. on my oh that is brilliant because i because that was like i that was the first movie experience that i i remember watching that movie and then seeing how like noticing the cinematography mm-hmm. like 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 you know i like i noticed like you know the silhouette in the in hollow you know or in exorcist and you know that that, that kind of image and that you know resonated with me and 
and you know the door opening with the mysterious silhouette in the fog. But I don't think that like I don't think that like the idea of people making those choices behind the scenes and that they were consistent across, even though Carpenter didn't direct obviously Halloween three, but there was a feeling across all of his movies that felt the same way. And I was like, Oh, that's a signature. That's a thing. That's what a director does. And it's so besides the fact that I liked the movie and it's, it's, you know, it's uh, such a, a a weirdly charming movie. um, I, I, I think it's because it's also that, that first moment that I recognized like that there was people behind the scenes making these choices which, and which, they were very specific choices. And I think, yeah, I think you tap on something for, you know, up and coming young filmmakers or students that is kind of uh, maybe less discussed, which is I think perfect masterpieces aren't actually the ones that usually give us the in to making movies because when it's perfect and it's, and, and it's you know, epics, your godfathers, their entertainment value, it kind of washes over you. You don't even get a chance to peek behind the curtain. And it was often, I think for most people I've spoken to, it's usually been something that is a little flawed or low mm-hmm. budget that you suddenly got, Oh, somebody made that. I think for me, I saw those, um, the, the school that uh, all the Polish filmmakers went to, they did a short film screening of all their shorts, you know, from the sixties mm-hmm. and, and suddenly seeing these guys who had gone on to make whatever Chinatown and anything else you can imagine seeing these handmade shorts. You're like, Oh, you can just do that. You can just yeah, yeah, have yeah. it, and yeah. and you need to see somehow. You have, especially yeah. when you're young, you have to. Now nowadays, the internet has everything, but when we're all growing up, it didn't have everything accessible yeah. of how you do these things. And so I think yeah. right on saying it's pretty interesting that it was Halloween three because my first experience of that was like, wait, that's not a movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, are you serious? I, I, I could, I didn't like it because I was waiting for, and now it's my, it's my favorite see, of all of them now. But at the time, I saw it, Halloween three before all of them, and then mm. I went back and watched Michael Myers. My parents, for some reason, we had Halloween three on VHS, and so I watched that in repetition. And then it was much later when I was like, oh wait, this is part of a bigger thing with this guy i'm not actually and kidding i guys. just never even connected the two I, I it was actually i'm not even kidding this is true i was most disappointed that there was no witch in it yeah, yeah. <laughs> the I, witch. I, I remember i remember that feeling absolutely <laughs> i was like yeah. wait a minute i get the it. witch from michael myers <laughs> but, <laughs> but now it's the best so the movie that did that for me, the thing that like made you think about how it was being made i've talked about this eons ago on the show was suspiria mm. because suddenly oh. i was like why are there colors there? There shouldn't, that shouldn't be there. And I wanted to, like, it drew so much attention to all the devices of filmmaking that I suddenly was aware of all of these director tools that I'd never like music blends into the background. It doesn't there. It smacks you across the face the whole time. Um, And the same with the lights and the way the camera's moving and the production design and everything. And I remember that one being the first movie where I was conscious of all of the different devices working at once and that somebody had made those decisions. Yeah. Um, and it was that, like, yeah. that was so aggressively maximalist yeah. yes. at, all, at, at, at all times, you know, and, and makes such, you know, a, a, we, you become accustomed to the film language or a certain kind of film, like Hollywood film language. And there's a certain, I don't know, call it taste or whatever you want to, you know, the decorum or whatever. And when you see a Dario Argento movie and it's just, you know, the, like, the goblin music is going crazy and the cuts are like just even that like the, in the first like three minutes it's, it's like a crazy like, the opening yeah it's like a weird cut to the to the door opening yeah. and the music comes in and then there's those running through the you know, the girl running through the forest and the as they're driving in and the colors of i mean you know the mario bava and dario gento color palette is a big uh, obviously big influence on renfield 
And uh, uh, that makes yeah. sense because your greens mm-hmm. are really I, lo- I love a good green that that tone on on film. It just always looks yeah. so sickly. It's yeah. so sickly and gorgeous. But something we're all kind of dis- you're, you're, you're kind of touching on is the um, the un- like Becca, especially is the unconscious in film. Mm-hmm. And so much of what we are, you know, obviously Hollywood is about logic and story and 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 people like Lynch and and Argento are so good and brave to just go yeah. push into something that we can't articulate how we're feeling about it but we know it's affecting us and i think even in little little aspects of that movies have a whole different dimension right mm-hmm. yeah it's tough in the studio system because people don't want to get behind things that can that are more dreamlike yeah. or yeah. you know that 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 you that the that the filmmaking the 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 interior logic of the movie takes over as opposed to a plot or a thing that's yeah. just, you know, that needs to, you know, you need to tell it this way. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, they, they're, they're, they get very nervous. And so it's, I think you see less and less of that. Because you, don't <laughs> I, have, you know, filmmakers who are, they'll, the, they'll let sort of push the envelope, unfortunately. I had a direct quote from a producer that I was working with where he said, take the word cerebral out of every single one of your pitches <laughs> because he'd looked at a couple of my pitch docs and I'd used like, heady and cerebral twice and he was like studios hate that word um as soon as you put that word in it means like it's it's based on perspective and then that's bad that's real yeah, bad yeah, take yeah. that out so yeah i, w- I want to talk <laughs> about the start of uh the film the, i'm not going to spoil much because we're part of this is we really want people to see it so and i want people yeah. to see it in theaters you know while they can because just the yes. nature of movies now you don't know how long things yeah. It's so big. Yeah. And this is one to watch with people. Cause that's what I mean by I had the most fun of any movie this year is just because it was hitting a lot of my sweet spots, but also things that surprised me, uh, which is rare, I guess, after watching so many movies, but I wanted to talk about that, how loving and how that the sequence, just in terms of complexity, cause, uh, of basically the origin kind of Dracula story, which was so well done kind of using the original Bela Lugosi uh, character, mm-hmm. but with Cage in there and Cage's performance also, you know, paying tribute, I think, to Lugosi in that sequence. Yeah. But uh, just some of the, talk us through some of the challenges of putting stuff like that together, because it was just, it, that alone was enough for me to give you utter horror cred where it's like, okay, this is coming from a <laughs> loving place, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, I think there's two reasons why I wanted to do that. I mean, the first reason, obviously, is because, you know, we are, you know, traveling on hallowed ground, you know what I mean? Like, you want to show a lot of love for the you know the past and and you're you know, we're in universe i'm at universal yeah. making a universal monsters movie and you know what better way to you know um you know to to do you know what what better place to be able to do something like that and and opportunity to do something like that i it would feel it would feel like we left money on the table mm. by not trying to do something like that and uh, you know atmospherically and but also even more importantly the second reason is is the characters and being having a real connection to their past and a connection that the audience can feel, even if it is a brushstroke, even if it's shorthand, mm. wanting, wanting them to feel like there was a deep history with these with these characters. And so, by putting Dracula, putting Cage's Dracula on the you know staircase with the uh, big spider web, you know, behind him and stuff like that, like that to me was you know you had to do that in this movie. Mm. It just seemed like it just seemed like a no brainer. The studio did not feel the same way. Uh, the, studio, oh, no. the, studio, the studio would have been very happy to not do any of that stuff in the beginning at all, uh, you know, including uh, Cage uh, and and Holt fighting the vampire hunters and everything. They would have, they they just want to start the movie in you know in New Orleans like that. All that stuff I had to beg and borrow and figure out how to how to do and move other things around 
Um, but that, that, that's what makes it special. And I think that's something that mm. can be disregarded as how much a director or whoever needs to find, like uh, what uh, the Coen brothers call the director, the immune system of the movie. And, <laughs> and, you know, like when I heard that term, I was like, that's the yeah. best I've ever heard yeah. because everything yeah. is going to try to kill you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and you're going to try to fight those things off. But I mean, I think going that extra distance is what can tip. I, that's what I mean by this was a, a wire act that, could very easily have gone the other way. Like in certain mm-hmm. sequences, I'm like, oh, and then it just always landed for me. Uh, but it, the loving nature of some of those sequences are just is so terrific to me. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about your effects if we can. Because yeah, um, sure. you said, you mentioned up at the top that they were primarily practical. Yeah, yeah. We, we start, you know, I, I wanted to shoot as much practice as possible. Obviously, there's a lot of resistance to that. Mm-hmm. You know, from the studio <laughs> and from the and from the producers and sometimes from certain crew members. Um, but I, you know, it was really important to me to at least try yeah. to design it and build it as if we were going to go practically and take everybody down that road as far as humanly possible until the point where we either, you know, because you're constantly every day on a studio movie like this, you're dealing with budget stuff. You're constantly revising your budget in the run up to production. So you're just, you're so every other conversation is not a creative conversation. In fact, I would say probably 90% of the conversations are not creative conversations. It's just conversations about the budget and, and how you're going to do it. But yeah, they, I think they would have been happy if we had just put dots on cage and, and, uh, and, and just did it all later. So, cause they were very worried about the tone. They were worried, very worried about being people being grossed out and on, you know, and finding it sort of um, un- unappealing and all that kind of thing. And so, so uh, Christian Tinsley, who uh, who had never worked with before, and he's amazing. Christian and his team are wonderful, brilliant um, artists. Uh, really care on a really deep level. Mm-hmm. Um, they 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 came to the table. Christian had some great designs. I talked about some stuff that I want to try to get across at each of the stages with Dracula. Cage had some you know ideas, and he just, you know he you know his his main thing is he wanted to be able. To, I wanted to occasionally use the Christopher Lee uh, contact lenses, the mm-hmm. bloodshot like from the Hammer movies. And so, um, and, but Cage, you know, wanted to at least be able to see his his own eyes. He wanted the makeup to get heavy and get crazy, but he wanted to be able to see his own eyes because he wanted always this this thing, which I really loved, that Dracula would have, that there would be just a little bit of a humanity mm. in Dracula, that you always be able to see, you know, what was going on because he, you know, he's just big on acting. You know, again, he uses everything, but he's just really big on, you know, what's going on behind his eyes. He wants to make sure that people see that. And the and, practical you know, must play a part for his performance in a big way, right? Like he just strikes me as someone who would have gone so much better with all the practical effects. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's, because he's in it. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's just like when tomorrow war take, you know, we could have shot like that glacier stuff at the end of tomorrow war, you know, on, on a green screen stage. It would have been easy mm-hmm. to do that, you know, white out the backgrounds or get plates or whatever, but taking all the actors to Iceland <laughs> and putting them on a glacier. It's so like, it just changes you. Just change yeah. reform, just change it's just everything. And so by trying to do, you know, but Cage, when he turns around, he's been in makeup for four hours. He turns around and looks in the mirror. He doesn't look anything like himself. He's got 30 pounds because we've got makeup on his body and hands and everything else. He's got 30 pounds of makeup on him. It just changes the way. And he's a guy who just uses his, you know, he, he's a cartoon character sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like he uses the shapes that he that he makes with his body are part of how expressive he is. And so by having all of that just informs his performance. He's, you know, he's meant to be healing at that point. And this is where Renfield, you know, part of this, you have to convince the audience too, that Dracula can't do what he needs to do. The Renfield absolutely has to, Renfield's got his moral, moral dilemma he's dealing with, and he absolutely has to go off and do these things. 
for Dracula. So it, it contributes to the plot. It contributes to, you know, to the, that feeling contributes to Cage's performance. It's it, to me, that's, you know, uh, it was super necessary to, to do it that way. And just, you know, I was able to get away with it. There was just a couple of tiny things that we had ILM do to clean up some, some of where the makeup attached to his, mm-hmm. to his lip area, because I, I wanted that to feel very real. And sometimes when you have, some of those appliances, there can be gaps and things like that. Yeah. So ILM did a bunch of stuff in that area, just around his, just around his mouth and around just under his, uh, just under his left eye. Um, and just to, just to tighten some of that stuff up a little bit and just give it just a touch more realism, but everything else is Tinsley mm-hmm. and his team. And, uh, and the amazing thing about what they did for the later iterations of Dracula is create all this depth. Cause that's the hardest thing to do is to build mm-hmm. To build up Cage's face to still make him because as he's healing, he looks more and more like Cage because he's getting towards you know sort of the you know perfect uh, version of Dracula. He's 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 you know you can but you can just they they still made him feel like Cage and built but they built it up just enough that you can create that depth in there. And when you rake the light through, through that, it just it's just this perfect. It just feels like it just feels like you know messed up you know uh, uh, messed up skin. And it's just I was yeah that in the vintage like I was just I was just really amazed. And what those guys were able to do. I was very fortunate to work with Tinsley, to work with Jamie Price, who's a visual effects supervisor, who, you know, really truly, you know, believed in like just you want, you know, for the CG stuff, we got to try to match it or, you know, as, as much as possible. So they really tried to study that stuff and did a bunch of tests and things like that and tried to, you know, so that they could have, so the artists could, you know, the CG artists could draw on those things. And I'm constantly pushing a little bit of like contrast into that stuff and just try to get it to feel as real. It's tough because that stuff, you, know, you, you, you there's a physics to that stuff that's hard to convince people of. It's it's hard, but you know, try to do as many of those things as real as possible. And you know, special effects on the set. You know, want as many sparks and you know, muzzle flash and all that kind of thing. We did, you know, did, a, did wow. as many of this, as practically as as humanly possible. Because I think again, again, when you've got you know Holt and Aquafina and they're doing some gunplay stuff and you've got things exploding around them, it just makes a big, it just puts them in the scene. You know what I mean? You're no longer you no longer have to act. You're just you really are like amped up and you know, there's things flying around you and it's, 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 and I like the, you know, it's probably just like an old school way of doing things, but I, I kind of like the feeling of like, like we're on a, you know, Sam Peck and Paw set or something. <laughs> so with that in mind, how many days did it take you to shoot the apartment courtyard sequence? Uh, you know, because I had an amazing stunt coordinator, Chris Brewster, uh, a lot of Chris's on this movie. Um, uh, Chris Brewster uh, did incredible stunt fizz. And his team, he also had, a, his team was fantastic. Um, everybody in the team was, was a, just a go-getter. But, um, but he did this really great stunt viz. We talked a lot about Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. um, you know, action scenes, because that we, we knew we, there always had to be gags to the mm-hmm. stuff that we're doing, whether, whether it's a, you know, a special effects gag with the arms getting torn off or, you know, the, using the decorative serving platter to cut off a guy's arms or whatever. Um, that feels like super cop the second the second place story because with michelle oh, yeah. yeah and him bouncing off each other it, it has a little bit of that interplay absolutely and you know and, and so i wanted you know there's got to be a point to you know action scenes like that there has to be a story point a character point there has to be a goal and then um and then you know gags and then and and then it's particularly like you said in 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 terms of like kind of the super cop um uh of it all there has to be kind of a dance between these two people of like, you know, you know, that they're each kind of saving each other. And, you know, there's just some really, to me, there's just some really um, some charming moments that Chris put in there, but 
the apartment fight starts with, with, with you know, with that, with that stunt viz. And there's a bunch of things I want to add to it and add the board artist, draw some things. And then, um, and then Tinsley, you know, brought in like that face rip mm-hmm. with something that I saw him do, like on a, he did something similar to this, like on a West, on one of the Westworld uh, episodes that he worked on. And so I said, hey, can we do like a face rip here? And so just kind of, you know, escalated this thing where the, you know, Renfield jumps down and the guy gets, you know, sort of cut in half. Um, but I, but it didn't take, I, I think because the, the stunt viz was so well done, it actually didn't take as long uh, as you think, because I, because all I was doing is literally, unless something kind of came up that I wanted to try, I was literally just trying to, to match as many of those things. Cause we worked all that stuff out ahead of time. Cause he went back, you know, we had, I, he had, he did a couple of runs of the stunt viz once, once we gave notes and that kind of thing. So it was, you know, I, it, I probably honestly took longer to do dialogue uh, scenes uh, in, in like the CODA meeting because mm-hmm. I was, you know, improvising things and trying things out and, mm-hmm. you know, I had, you know, uh, you know, four cameras going. Cause I, cause I kept running those, that, those scenes like a play. Cause I just wanted to like, I wanted those guys to kind of feel as real as possible. You know, mm-hmm. we, had, we had, you know, actors, local actors, you know, actors from, you know, um, everywhere, you know, so I wanted everybody to kind of mesh and you don't really have a lot of time to rehearse with people like that, you know, and, and you know, when, when you're kind of just, the scene like that because everyone's you know just coming in that day you know actually so, in new orleans you were shooting in new orleans yeah, yeah now were you shooting there just because that's where nick cage's crypt is for his future death <laughs> i assume <laughs> it- that's a rider right he's like you have to yeah, shoot in new orleans yeah, like, yeah you gotta in case i go we could yeah just- <laughs> yeah yeah we're planning to go to europe and then uh yeah we had to change everything was uh, it written for new orleans originally or was, was, was that written, like a tax thing or it was written for pittsburgh i believe oh, the oh nice that i got um and uh, but then it occurred to me that innocent blood uh, takes place oh, yeah. in Pittsburgh, yeah. and I thought, oh, we should probably find another uh, city to do that. I, I um, give you a little bit of horror respect right now for that. Just right for there. the people listening right who that there. went over the head, that's a good John Landis, <laughs> underrated Anthony Lapaglia. Also, actually yeah. has the gangster crime element yep. that you does. guys, so you guys are. <laughs> I got really nervous that uh, people were gonna. People are going to notice too many, too many uh, similar blood references. Yeah, it, it, that actually has a pretty good, a couple good like burnt to death type moments. To, mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. not quite as many. But one, one big one was Cage, and I, we might have off air like talked about this, but, but was Cage and Holt already cast before you came on, or was that part of? No, because no, it's no. so interesting to imagine. You can't imagine it any other way once you're watching this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. When I read the script, I, uh, you know, as far as Renfield goes, the the only person that I thought could really do all the things that this movie needed to do w- with Renfield was Nick Holt. You know, I'd met I'd met him once before, and I really liked him, and we stayed in touch. And I was just like, this guy, that you know, he knows comedy. He's also can do, you know, credible charm. He's unafraid to do weird, and and he and he's and he and and unlikable, potentially unlikable. People that make you know bad decisions, um, he's unafraid to do all that stuff, and he, you know he he's, he doesn't need to look cool, you know that's not like that his is that's not his stock and trade, like so, and he's got incredible vulnerability. You you, um, he lets you in, and you want to root for him. Like he just you when you, when you see his performances, when you're watching him, there's something about how he has no walls up, and he's not trying to be cool or anything else. He's just. Um, he's just, yeah, you know, he's just vulnerable, and he, and I think he makes he makes you want to root for him, especially in that sweater. And then, yeah, what do you get? The sweater. You, you gave him the sweater, but because uh, so only a couple of weeks ago for for the other podcast, I was doing a thing for the future hasn't come out yet, but uh, of 
like uh, on actors roles I'd missed of theirs and I'd never seen the weatherman and mm. to find that Nick Cage is the dad of Holt in that yeah, adds yeah. so much to this movie because it's like yeah. oh it's like they already had a chance to like start a relationship with a power dynamic a little bit yeah. in the past like a decade ago and so yeah. to me that was that, that was a total surprise it wasn't something i had had really thought about so when i was watching the movie i was like oh this is a nice nice continuation uh of getting to like play with those da- dynamics now the son can like really fight back <laughs> yeah well and also he was kind of you know an odd of him at such a young age yeah. too mm-hmm. to work with him you know that at that time and see you know you know, Cage when he was, you know, when that, that was a movie like the 2000s, right? Yeah, or, yeah early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, you know, he, I think it really helped their dynamic a lot because oh. I think there's a lot of history there. But Cage was first on your mind for Dracula, or did you, is, was that like an inspired moment? Because I don't think everyone would naturally jump to that. I yeah. agree. Yeah. I, I, you know, the, I, we, we had a list of people that the studio gave us and, um, we were trying to think of like people that, you know, like I, I was just trying to think of people who, like who you'd really want to pay money to go see. Mm. Like the, the, it's like, there's a lot of people who can do it. Right. But there's, the, there's, there's other, there's other people that you just have, like, I have to go see what that person's going to do when they play Dracula and cage was the, you know, I think, I think there's like, honestly, there's like two people that for me, it was a cage and Daniel day Lewis. Oh yeah. And, uh, you get know, very like, different results, but I could see it. Yeah. yeah. Very different I, results. <laughs> yeah. Daniel day Lewis is going to be kind of classy. I have a well, feeling yeah. I liked that cage was far more. It felt like a narcissist. It felt yeah. very self-absorbed, but, but people yeah. don't, that when I keep going back to this tight wire thing is like the, the reason we know it isn't as easy as it looks is you watch something like Elvis and you know, mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is one of the greatest actors in the history of this medium. And that feels like a cartoon, you know, what he's doing, yeah. but, you know, so yeah. there's many ways to play roles like this. So, and, yeah. and Cage never falls into that. It always feels grounded with, like you said, with his actual hurt feelings of this person that he's meant to be uh, in control of. And yet he's actually, in some ways, his emotions are being controlled by his inability to control this yeah, character. Absolutely. And that makes for a much deeper experience than just, you know, he's Dracula. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was, I mean, he always brought really, he was always brought a lot of really funny, and smart ideas to the table and even just little word choices that he wanted, you know, that he didn't, he didn't mess around with the script too much, but he was always like, he had, he had really smart, just like this, this word sounds older or just kind of in his sort of like mid Atlantic uh, accent that he was doing that he, it's just a word that just kind of, you know, it says the right amount of just, you know, English when it comes out of Cage's mouth, but it's just like, it's just kind of perfect. Like he was, yeah, he, he was, uh, he was, he, he had he really had some really wonderful like just little tiny tiny little notes that just made it perfect. Did you get Nicholas Holt to actually eat a bug? Yeah, we yeah, yeah he and I both ate some bugs in the prop department. Uh, uh, when we we're testing it out, we because uh, we, we obviously had to find things they had to eat on set for different scenes, and so there were some freeze dried uh, hickory smoked crickets mm-hmm. that we tried, uh, and uh, and then and then. Uh, uh, which were fine. It actually t- didn't taste bad at all. Those, yeah. those were, they're kind of candied. Yeah, at the Natural History Museum, I guess it was right before the pandemic, <clears throat> they did this big bug fair and they had these chefs come in and actually like gourmet prep all these different insects. And I eat like ranch crickets and barbecued crickets <laughs> and they tasted quite good. It was almost like like a like it had like a quinoa flavor to it. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, <laughs> the, the, the worst thing that we ate was a potato bug because there's like there's, pill bug? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're I, so cute. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, the, that was bad because there's like a lot of layers. And you see, they so eat a big it, grub. They, there's big grubs called hoo-hoo grubs that they eat right out of the ground. I've just, it looks, I can't do it. Yeah. It's not for yeah. me. <laughs> Yeah. Now I have to look up hoo hoo grub. Yeah. That's like the best name hoo-hoo ever. Uh, there's two side categories that I, I just like. These are more quick round. Uh, an obvious one is you know favorite cage film, but I'm just because I the, I take this seriously. Like not necessarily the best, but like what are some of the cage performances that maybe you affected you over the years? I you know I I, I uh, adaptation mm-hmm, yeah. I find to be so funny and the just obviously the. The differences between, you know, Charlie and Donald uh, when he's playing the twins are just are so much fun. Um, that's that's one that I really like. Um, and I also think, um, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, again, I, I'm just going with ones that I just I just there's something about them. And probably maybe because they are off a little bit more off the beaten path. But but it could happen to you. Oh, that's so I funny because that's one of my favorites, too. I I, I find that really moving, so that film. Yeah, it's really. Yeah. It's a very cute film. He, he He's so surprisingly incredible at romantic comedies he might be yeah. one of the great and has kind of gone away from that the last you know 20 years but like he was always so good in things like that that yeah. have a romantic i mean moonstruck obviously but he he just is one of those guys who i think the saying in the puppy dog eyes yeah uh yeah. He, he's a quality like honeymoon in vegas is a movie i think is hilarious um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but he's he, that's the thing if you go pound for pound people have ridden him off in the last like decade for whatever reason and I, i'll always meet people like that who don't really get what he does i'm like look at the filmography it's just unreal yeah. um yeah okay so you know, yeah kiss of death is another one i don't remember kiss of yeah. death though oh, oh gosh yeah pumping, where, pumping the yeah, iron exactly. <laughs> yeah where he's, where he's, he's bench pressing a stripper i saw it in theaters opening night I, that was one where i was like holy shit that was probably the craziest role i had seen at up to that point of his where yeah. i was like whoa what is he doing and it's pretty great not a great movie yeah. but he's great in it yeah yeah it's a million percent not a great movie but he's like he's so good and the thing was that that's where he's so menacing at times and over the top at times, but menacing, but he's also so vulnerable because he's got that puffer, you know, he's yeah. an asthmatic and he's, he's always, you know, hitting that, that puffer. And he's, uh, that, that was something that that surprising vulnerability, even in a role like that, uh, that he just does beautifully. That, that was, that to me was like another, that was, that was one of the reasons why I, you know, I thought of, I thought for sure he'd make a great Dracula for a movie. So the other category that we just have to, well, I just am curious about, to be honest, is vampire films. Like uh, what, what yeah. they meant to you over the years. And if you had favorites growing up or if there's things that you looked back towards before you started making this one. Or favorite yeah. depictions of Dracula yeah. even. I, I, you know, I, the horror of Dracula, the first Christopher Lee movie. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of doing a riff on that in the beginning of I wanted the I wanted the beginning of our movie to feel like the third act of somebody else's Dracula movie. Yeah. So that like you'd you'd, you'd finish you'd finish Dracula's story the way you'd finish Dracula's story in, in in like Horror of Dracula where he you know Peter Cushing runs across the table pulls the curtains down Dracula you know lights on fire they did they do a puppet gag uh, mm-hmm. in that movie and the same that you know I want to do all I want to you know light a guy on fire and and do the do a do a puppet gag, uh, you know, have you know, Christian built this funny burnt up puppet of cage. Um, and, uh, I, so I wanted to do that. And, uh, so horror Dracula was a big one for me when I was really little, when I saw that, cause it was just, so I just got swept up in the you know excitement and the color of, you know, a hammer movie. Um, I probably like have more love for that Frank Langella movie for some odd reason yeah. than, than, you know, there's just something about 
Dracula being so romantic and shooting it so romantic. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's that scene with the dinner table with all the, they're shooting those telephoto lenses and they're shooting through all those candles. There's just like stacks and stacks of candles between, you know, you know, Frank Langella and Kate Nelligan. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, he's doing this weird thing with his eyes where he's making his eyes do this twitchy stuff, but he's still kind of this, you know, uh, tortured romantic lead and, and the crazy laser disco scene. <laughs> um, I, you know, there, I, I, there's probably a lot of love for that, but vampire movies, like the stuff that I really loved uh, when I was a kid was like near dark. Yeah. Oh yeah. In the original fright night, I probably you know, put William Ragsdale. Um, William Ragsdale plays one of the uh, um, vampire hunters in the beginning of our movie. Oh, I Are didn't, you serious? I didn't catch it, oh man. my it, gosh. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so, so Charlie Brewster uh, oh, grew funny. up to to, to uh, become a vampire hunter, and in in our, he's he's the priest that explodes. Oh, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So he's immediately happy makeup, and you know, we, old, we gave him old age makeup and a big beard and stuff like that. But you know, he's he's he, you know he's I think he lives in New Orleans or lives huh. part time in New Orleans. So um, so yeah, so I cast him and I cast a. Uh, Caroline Williams uh, from Texas. Chainsaw I did Man. spot that. I straight we away. Recommend, yeah, <laughs> straight away. And I didn't. And we left the theater and he was immediately like, you know, that's Caroline Williams. And I didn't even recognize her. She was in my Lifetime film. I didn't even recognize her. That's awesome. As a lawyer. That's great. Yeah, she played a lawyer in my Lifetime film. <laughs> that's that's great. That's, yeah. I mean, she, you know, I want, look, look, if it was up to me, I would have uh, gone crazy. Uh, that, that was another area where the studio, uh, studio probably helped me back a little bit uh, as far as that goes. I would have definitely cast a lot more uh, uh you know people that you know from from horror movies cuz that's cuz when cuz in 80s movies when they when they did that i just loved always loved those easter eggs where there's somebody from mm-hmm. you know some you know when when uh uh you know you know uh you know joe dante puts kevin mccarthy yeah. you know, in his movies a bunch and i just always loved yeah. that that kind of especially thing. when it's when it's done with love it almost always works when it's done as like just a gag it's you know yeah. um i got a wreck for you that one that i stumbled on a couple of years ago you might have come across it was a tv pilot called vampire and it's richard lynch as um dracula and oh and, yeah i've heard about yeah, that and it's um the guy from the exorcist uh name blanking uh max max on side no, no, the uh the other priest um jason miller? jason miller as as a guy who is basically kind of pulled into trying to stop him but it's it's one of the like it's one of those things you watch this tv it was like it feels like a full movie but it was it was Ooh. apparently a pilot it feels more like a tv movie but it's so good and dark and richard lynch is such yeah. an interesting vampire because richard lynch is just another one of those actors who's yeah, yeah. kind of grotesque on one hand but really charming and yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah if you can track that it's probably on youtube or saying but that was one of those ones where i was shocked how good it was for saying just languishing you know yeah and obscurity yeah yeah i gotta check that out because i because i because i read some about that you know kind of recently there's a uh who's who's it? uh the christian there's a guy who put out a vampire book it's like a huge exhaustive compendium oh. of vampire and dracula movies it's a big i saw it over at the Book soup the other day, oh, okay. and, and that that and that to Richard Lynch uh, uh, movie was in there. Made, so, it, like, made I, the I, cut. Yeah, oh, I'm looking that up right now because I need that whatever it is. Yeah, so. I can't, I can't, why can't I remember the name of that author? Uh, he's done I other will. other things like he's I think he's did like Tashin books and things like that. So he's done. Ooh, like, big, nice big co- coffee table books. 
I will dig it up. Um, yeah, my deep cut vampire film is one that you actually recommended to me a number of years ago, Alric Midnight Sun, oh, yeah. which I think is probably like 12 years old now, yeah. um, where it's like a subtle thing and it's like a skin disease and mm. then it gradually progresses. I really enjoyed. And then there was a New Zealand film called Perfect Creature that got yeah. no love when it released. And um, I didn't love it. <laughs> I didn't love it at the time. I remember. I did. I still I remember you do. <laughs> It treats it as like a genetic thing. And there's just, I, I found it to be so fascinating, their portrayals on vampires. And it had the crappiest DVD cover when it released back probably like 2006, 2007. It was just a pair of lips. And it's nothing to do with yeah. that. Like it's, it was the worst cover. And I always like that one. It's worth a rewatch. Chris says yeah, Dracula I- 2000 was his favorite. Uh, I'll speak for him. You know, Chris says Dracula 2000 is where it's at, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I would have, uh, I would have homaged Dracula two thousand if they'd, if they'd let me in our movie. Um, Jared Butler for one scene that would have been fun. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Fresh off a plane. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, I, I, the funny thing when you bring up all these movies, you know, I, I think of how, you know, how malleable the vampires are as mm-hmm. metaphors, and I think about like the Abel Ferrara yeah, addiction movie. You know, addiction. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorites. Fess- mm-hmm. Yeah, Larry Fessenden's movie Habit. Mm-hmm. Habit. You know, like all of that stuff, and Let the Right One In was a big movie for yeah. me when that when that came out. Um, I really love that. Uh, I really love that movie, and it's that's vampires have been you know, I mean, a, uh, kind of a big part of my uh you know my the movies that i've loved uh throughout throughout the ages you know i think what i liked what i liked about this approach the most was that it wasn't uh, almost all versions of dracula are about the romantic dracula mm-hmm. and the female intended character and i like that this was a different type of relationship like this was not about that side of a relationship yeah. and i hadn't seen that before that's that's something that surprised me that that you could maintain yeah. that that was really great yeah, yeah, and Dracula is always the sexy one. Yeah. I mean, like, even if we are looking at, like, the the postmodern ones where it gets into, like, near dark and things like that, the vampire still has a sexiness to it. And this, he's not sexy. Usually right. Dracula has, like, great hair. That's the big thing that we yeah. see in the 80s is Dracula gets really good hair and it gets yeah. hot. I mean, like, even Only Lovers Left Alive, the hair gets yeah, epic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's beautiful hair. And yeah. then um, in this one, Nicholas Holt has good hair. I cried when they gave him a haircut. I liked his I liked his <laughs> early hair. That yeah. was hot. It was hot and yet, hair. Cage in the one it. scene, he gets to show that if he wants to, when he comes in and meets Shoran, he's just like able yeah. to turn it on like that if he wants to be that guy. But but I appreciate yeah. it wasn't that movie. And I think that, you know, it's just unique. It's it's a really terrific movie. We had a, a real blast and we want people to see it while they can in proper theaters, you know? Yeah, it's um, definitely meant to be seen with an audience for sure. Yeah. So before I ask about um, your new project that I at least want to get a little bit of details on, for those of you all who were also curious, just like me, hoo-hoo grubs, they are only found in New Zealand. <laughs> of course. Um, they apparently taste like peanut butter. You're supposed to eat them straight out of the ground. If you cook them, they get bitter. Um, and they're fucking huge. I they're had big. to look it up. Now, then my question became, okay, I have these big, like, white motherfuckers in my yard. They're, like, also lawn grubs. And that's what we call them here in the States. They're boring. They're just called lawn grubs. Um, And they're massive and they're white. And I have them all over my yard. Apparently, if you are so inclined, you can also eat them. Um, so <laughs> I, I wouldn't in America because of all the shit you guys spray in this country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the it's size. true. Yeah. I have New put so a little much better. in the yard trying to get rid of those guys. So, yeah. Um, But apparently, if you are lost in the woods, yeah, starving, 
Grubs are a pl- great place yeah. to start. Apparently, they all taste bad when you cook them because they shrivel and get really bitter. But if you just want to bite into those puppies while they're still alive, delectable treat right there. Knock yourself out. So I'm thinking a movie um, like Squirm, but it's all hoo-hoo grubs. New Zealand yeah, set. Peter grubs. Jackson presents. We could do this. We got it. <laughs> live on air. Before you leave, I have to ask because I'm super excited. You're you're venturing into some Dick Grayson Nightwing territory next, right? I hope so. I mean, that's still something I, you know, something I've been working on for a little while that I, I really wanted to, um, you know, even even when Renfield takes his the arms off of uh, the you know the guy he's using him like a scream of sticks. There was a little there was a little bit of a Nightwing uh, a little love for Nightwing there where he's using the arms like a scream of sticks beating mm-hmm. the guy stuff like that, but um. Yeah, I hope that I I hope to make that movie. Uh, I, that's something I'd really like to do, and I'm gonna, you know, uh, hopefully have a conversation with DC uh, about that. But that's you know, that's uh, something that's been, been kind of working out for a few years. That uh, you know, it's it's you know, oh, I, there's a it's kind of like a um, it's a little bit like Tony Scott's Man on Fire mm. is sort of what the uh, what the basic. That's uh, a pretty badass movie. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh, yeah. Without going into much detail, that's kind of like a little bit of like. Uh, you know, how our movie uh, starts anyway. Do you see? And, do you ever see yourself coming back to make a like a non-comedy horror, like something to disturb and, and push? Is that saying that would even be of oh, your interest? Yeah, absolutely. If if that if that yes, absolutely. If that ever uh, if I <clears throat> ever got a script uh, that was you know anything like that, I would absolutely love to do okay, that. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I've you know the, those are the movies that 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 changed my life. Mm. Maybe want to be a filmmaker, so. Absolutely. If I could get involved in one of those, you know, and, you know, it's just trying to find the right script, yeah. you know, trying to find the studio that wants to make it. So, um, but yeah, I'm always looking, you know, up Stephen King, you know, stuff that hasn't been done. And is there anything left that, you know, you can turn into a movie and yeah, just, yeah, I would love to do something that's like straight, straight horror. Absolutely. And do we have another Lego movie on the horizon? And my daughter specifically said she would give you $5 if you put Unikitty in it. So um, $5. Has her own show. I know Batman's in it. (laughs) Batman, like the two of them interacting is epic. Um, But big Unikitty fan here. But yeah, do we have any more Lego on the horizon too? Uh, uh, Warner Brothers uh, and is not, Lego is not at Warner Brothers anymore. Lego is a universal now. So they probably won't be doing uh, some of the same characters that they were doing. I think that, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, maybe there'll be a, a Lego Jurassic Park movie or a Lego Jaws movie or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think universal and illumination now have, have Lego. So I think the, they're going to do something with it. And, uh, I don't think um, any, any dude can just roll on a show and go, there's going to be Lego jaws. Now there has to be Lego jaws. I mean, you have thrown that into the universe, sir. I am yeah, now who doesn't want Lego jaws now that I could watch a shot for shot remake done on Lego and I would still be, I would be completely <laughs> amused yeah. completely. And I do have to say the Lego Jurassic park hilarious i love it so i'll take it but that said i will miss some of those amazing characters that were set up they were just brilliant but um that said i'll take lego movies in any capacity so lego jaws make it happen yeah i'm I'm, I'm hoping that they do like a hybrid of something like that they try to do something where there's like a a mixture of live action and lego or bring lego into the real world i think there's like I, i think there's like some stuff that's kind of untapped um, there that could be really fun. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's something hmm. they do with it, but we'll see. 
That's very That's cool. awesome. Well, thank you so much for finally joining us and we will thank get you, you back anytime. You are welcome to come yeah. back on. A lot of fun. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Really yeah, and so congrats much. on just making such a great film. Just know that you, like, we're pretty hardcore and we were into, like, the weirdest shit you can find pretty much and we were still just totally entertained. So mm-hmm. we appreciate it. Yeah, so everybody please go see renfield in a theater it is so worth it to see it there it's a huge giant gory movie thank you guys so much for listening tonight um we will be back in two weeks with another exciting show and if you miss us in the meantime you can find us on our patreon show deep cuts where we are covering some of the weirdest damn shit we can get our hands on thank you guys so much for listening The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.